Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. How the pandemic is changing our taste in music. The most ironic thing that could happen to a newly published book titled Word Perfect. How asbestos might actually be a weapon against the climate crisis. And a Rocky Horror Picture Show themed monument in New Zealand. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I've been seeing this conversation pop up a lot on Twitter lately and realized I've experienced it myself as well. Music is just hitting different right now. You know, whether it's somehow better than before or you're listening to different kinds of music or have stopped listening altogether, a lot of people have reported their relationship to music changing during the pandemic. I mean, I know my friends and I have been sharing way more playlists with each other than ever before. I've been leaning into new artists, specifically in the folk rock genre, which kind of surprised me. And the other night, I actually sat outside and listened to an entire album from start to finish without doing anything else. I haven't done that in years. The album was Neil Cicerega's Mouth Dreams, which I mentioned on the show on Friday, just in case you were curious. Demi Dejuibe, you know, the writer, comedian, musician whose September 21st videos I shared last month, He tweeted over the weekend, quote, I don't know the science behind it, but all music is like five times as good right now. Every single song I listen to is pure sonic joy. Feels like waking up in the middle of the night and drinking ice cold water. Whole crew in the park right now swag surfing to needle in the hay, end quote. And that tweet really resonated with people. A composer and PhD student at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, Ifat Solzizo, replied, quote, I read a while back that when you're energetically drained, music and TV or films have a much greater emotional effect on you. So after months of this makes sense, end quote. Meanwhile, another Twitter user seems to have had the same experience as me, responding to the tweet, quote, Did you listen to the new Neil Cicerega album? Because that'll do it. Every time he drops a new mouth album, music is better after somehow, end quote. But in any case, a lot of people seem to really be enjoying music more right now, maybe even branching out in unexpected ways, or because it does feel so much more intense, have been avoiding it more than usual. Vice recently spoke to some experts about this apparent phenomenon of people's lockdown music tastes and behavior being disrupted, markedly increasing, decreasing, or just generally being, quote, wildly inconsistent, end quote. Jessica Pornfar, music therapist at Northwestern Medicine Central DuPage Hospital and Northwestern Medicine Delnor Hospital, told Vice, quote, The way we listen to music is extremely psychological and physiological. Music activates so many areas of the brain at the same time, in both hemispheres that involve emotion, memory, language, and motor. It activates the neurotransmitter dopamine, which helps you feel pleasure. Music can decrease your cortisol levels, the hormone in charge of stress, end quote. Of course, it can also trigger bad memories and the associated stress or harm that goes along with that, she added. You know, if there was maybe a certain song playing when something traumatic happened to you, or if you associate a song with a person in your life who passed away, something like that. 
And it's important to note that music therapy doesn't just mean listening to good music to make people feel better. It's more about using the physiological reactions to certain sounds in music, sometimes in combination with guided relaxation, to treat conditions like pain, anxiety, sleep deprivation, Alzheimer's, and more. And those physiological reactions can help explain some of the new music behaviors some of us have noticed in ourselves. Some people are listening to more fast-paced music like metal and punk, and many of them have been listening to it while they exercise, another activity that releases endorphins. And while a lot of people have ditched more intense music for a new jazz habit, say, Paranifar notes, quote, It's important to listen to music that matches our state of being in tempo, in rhythm, in frequency, in volume, and in lyrics. Sometimes people who are anxious listen to intentionally calming music, but it just makes them more anxious. End quote. She suggests finding music that first matches your mood and then transitioning into music that might calm or otherwise improve how you're feeling. And whether we're conscious of it or not, some of our change in taste or behavior can be chalked up to trying to avoid feeling things right now. Favorite songs and bands might just remind us of the concerts or events we can't go to. Even relatively benign songs might stir up emotions you just don't want to deal with right now. Meredith Johnson, an Oakland-based musician who performs as Warm Human, told Vice, quote, I stopped listening to music altogether and only listened to podcasts. I think because music makes me too emotional while I'm trying to shove all the feelings down every minute, and podcasts make me feel like people are around me talking about inane stuff. End quote. That's good news for the podcast industry, I suppose. Podcasts have been hit pretty hard by the lack of commuting by about half of the nation's workforce, but they're not alone. Spotify noted a 1,400% increase in work-from-home-themed playlists as people ditched their commuting playlists or radio stations. Pornfire concludes in Vice that despite, and really because of, everything going on, we have an innate desire to feel happy, and our approaches to music right now are a reflection of that, however it's manifesting. We're all just trying to get by. Alright, so I usually try to avoid making fun of people for typos or grammatical errors. You know, maybe English isn't their first language, maybe they're dyslexic, and frankly, I make a ton of typos, so anything I said as an attempted burn would just be laughably hypocritical. But this one is just too good. Susie Dent, a UK-based lexicographer and etymologist whose actual title is the Honorary Vice President of the Chartered Institute of Editing and Proofreading, released a book this week called Word Perfect, and it is full of typos. I mean, it's almost too good to be true. And the reason I'm okay bringing this up and having a laugh about it is because Dent is kind of in on the joke, or at least aware of the mistake. Basically, what happened is that her publisher accidentally printed an earlier version of the book, one before it had been through all of the standard editing rounds. As someone who has published a book, I can tell you this is among my worst nightmares. My early manuscripts weren't just rife with embarrassing typos, but embarrassing writing. You know, editing is a crucial part of the process, and those early drafts can be so vulnerable and raw. 
any ordinary author would be mortified, but for the book itself to be titled Word Perfect and Dent's entire career staked on defining words, I mean, oof. At least the marketing writes itself, I guess? The publishers said in a statement, quote, We're very sorry that due to a printing error, early copies of Word Perfect are not Word Perfect, end quote. And despite the total headache I'm sure this is for Dent and the publishing company, it's definitely gonna boost her book sales, I would say. I mean, there is no way I would have heard about this book or certainly made a segment for it on the podcast had this not happened. And in case you are interested, the book's full title is Word Perfect, Etymological Entertainment for Every Day of the Year. It includes, quoting The Guardian, the stories behind a word for every day of the year, from why May Day became a distress call to the meaning of snacksident, unintentionally eating a whole packet of biscuits, end quote. And as for how Dent herself is taking the incident, she tweeted on the day the book was published, quote, Today I can testify to the effectiveness of lalochesia, the use of swearing to alleviate stress and frustration. End quote. Sometimes solutions can come in unlikely places. Scientists are exploring the ways asbestos can be used to combat climate change, quoting the MIT Technology Review. The vast surface area of certain types of fibrous asbestos, a class of carcinogenic compounds once heavily used in heat-resistant building materials, makes them particularly good at grabbing hold of the carbon dioxide molecules dissolved in rainwater or floating through the air. The reaction with carbon dioxide mainly produces magnesium carbonate minerals like magnesite, a stable material that could lock away the greenhouse gas for millennia. Caleb Woodall, a graduate student at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and his advisor Jennifer Wilcox, a carbon removal researcher, are among a growing number of scientists exploring ways to accelerate these otherwise slow reactions in hopes of using mining waste to fight climate change. It's a handy carbon-capturing trick that may also work with the calcium and magnesium-rich byproducts of nickel, copper, diamond, and platinum mining. The initial hope is to offset the ample carbon emissions from mining itself using these minerals already extracted in the process. But the real hope is that this early work allows them to figure out how to effectively and affordably dig up minerals, potentially including asbestos, specifically for the purpose of drawing down vast amounts of greenhouse gas from the atmosphere." End quote. One of the main benefits of this process is that it can be done on a massive scale and will essentially work forever. It wouldn't be the only solution in the task of eliminating carbon emissions in the coming decades in order to keep the planet from warming to a point of no return, however. For example, quote, mines globally produce enough mineral byproducts to capture nearly 40 million tons of carbon dioxide per year, according to the National Academies study, end quote. But we need to remove 100 billion to 1 trillion metric tons of carbon dioxide this century to keep us on track. Still, it is a promising solution that could be added to a menu of other solutions like planting trees and increasing the carbon uptake in soils. Quoting again, Mineralization is already the main mechanism nature uses in the so-called slow carbon cycle. The carbon dioxide in rainwater dissolves basic rocks, producing magnesium, calcium, and other compounds that make their way into the oceans. There, marine life converts the materials into shells and skeletons that eventually turn into limestone and other rock types. 
There are more than enough minerals to tie up all the carbon dioxide we've ever emitted and more. The problem is that the vast majority are locked away in solid rock that doesn't come into contact with the greenhouse gas. Even when they're exposed in rock outcroppings, it can take a long time for these reactions to occur. But a variety of interventions can transform the natural slow carbon cycle into a faster one. Those include physical processes like simply digging up the materials, grinding them down into finer particles, and spreading them into thin layers, all of which increases the reactive surface area exposed to carbon dioxide. There are also ways to speed up the chemical reactions by adding heat or compounds like acids, end quote. Those different processes are being studied and experimented on by teams around the world with many different materials and minerals. As for the asbestos being studied by Woodall, one concern is that if the process involved left traces of asbestos on the site, would it be safe for people to be near? Or is there a world where it would actually be cleaner and safer than before? The jury is still out, and that jury will take the form of many regulatory boards as the study continues. And all of these processes are both expensive and potentially damaging. Great care and creativity has to be taken to make sure the process doesn't use so much energy that the overall result is no longer carbon negative. Still, again, it could be a promising option to add to a slew of other solutions. As we all know, there is not going to be one quick-fix panacea that solves the climate crisis. When I was in 8th grade, I hosted a Halloween party at my house and decided to screen a movie that my older brother had recently shown me for all of my nerdy, fairly sheltered, churchy kind of friends. And that movie was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. My friends were fairly shocked by it overall themselves, but of course, everyone's straight-laced parents arrived to pick their kids up right during the kind of sex scene-esque montage during the touch-a-touch-a-touch-a-touch-me song. Needless to say, most of them were not allowed back over at my house again. But the Rocky Horror Picture Show still holds a special place in my heart, as it does for so many people, and that is why, as of this morning, I have a new location to add to my bucket list once we're allowed to travel again. It turns out that New Zealand has a statue dedicated to Riff Raff. Riff Raff being the sort of Igor Butler character who was played by the writer and creator of Rocky Horror Picture Show, English actor Richard O'Brien. Though he was born in England, his family immigrated to New Zealand when he was 10, and he lived there until early adulthood. Located in Hamilton, on the former site of the barbershop where O'Brien used to work, cutting hair in the 1950s and 60s, the statue depicts the character as he appears at the end of the film, when he is revealed to be a space alien. Also on the statue are instructions for doing the time warp dance, and perhaps unbeknownst to people, at least at first, there is also a hidden camera connected to a live feed on the website, riffraffstatue.org, where you can watch people attempting the dance. Or, as I have observed on the website today, watch the sunrise in New Zealand while cyclists occasionally stop for a drink at the water fountain in the corner of the shot. The official tourism website for Hamilton, New Zealand, says the statue, quote, commemorates the development of the idea and the writing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show by Richard O'Brien. And now, as weird and fun as this is, I do have to note that when I was double-checking some facts about Richard O'Brien's life, I came upon some pretty upsetting comments he made denying the reality of trans women's experiences just a few years ago, despite his own fluid relationship to gender. 
So there may be more to it there, and, you know, maybe I don't want to visit a statue dedicated to the actor and writer Richard O'Brien, but it is still a pretty cool and funny thing to exist celebrating the character and the impact that the Rocky Horror Picture Show had on several generations of LGBTQIA plus folks, even if it certainly wouldn't be celebrated in the same way where it released today. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go listen to some black metal so that the music can match my emotions of inner terror. But I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 